This is Chad Harrison, and you're listening to Hope Alive, applying God's word to your daily life. Hi, this is Chad Harrison, and I am the teaching pastor of Lake Community Church and have been serving as a pastor for 25 years. I'm also a practicing attorney. This podcast is designed to help you study God's word and find God's will for your life. I pray in the name of Jesus right now that God would open up his word to you and allow you to see him and to know him and to know his will, that you might glorify him and that you might walk in faith and power each and every day, especially today in Jesus name. We are moving through the book of Genesis. And let me just pause right here at Genesis chapter 10, verse six, and talk about why the book of Genesis is so important today and why it's important to kind of look at the book of Genesis and these table of nations, because these table of nations are, or are these sons of Noah and the grandsons and great-grandsons of Noah are important because they're mentioned over and over again throughout scripture. I hope yesterday you got that idea as we were looking at them. These people are mentioned over and over throughout scripture. And not only that, not only that, uh, they are known entities throughout the world. Yesterday, I was talking about Russia and Rosh and uh, Gog and Magog. Those names are not unknown in those regions of the world. Those names have been around for millennia past, thousands and thousands of years, and they're well known. And we can date back this book, this book called the book of Genesis, all the way back to Moses. We can date it back through the text that we have. The Bible is a, the Bible is a, is not only a accurate book. The Bible is, is the most certified or the most recognized book from antiquity. And what I mean by that, the Iliad and the Odyssey are two, two of the main old books back in, in history. And the way we know that Homer actually wrote them is that we have what is called original manuscripts. We have five, 600 original, 700 original manuscripts of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And what do you mean by original? We have those manuscripts that date back to literally within 100 or 200 years of when they were written. So they're called original manuscripts. That means that they're uh, they're books that that we know were written by this person called Homer. We don't know Homer. We don't have video evidence of him existing. He's not like, it's not like Bigfoot. We're trying to find him out there in the wilderness. But we do know this guy named Homer wrote these books. And the reason we know is because we've got all these original manuscripts. The Bible doesn't have six or 700 original manuscripts. We have seven or eight or 9,000 original manuscripts. And we're continually finding manuscripts, Dead Sea Scrolls, more Dead Sea Scrolls, finding manuscripts that date back to the time these books were written. We can carbon date them back to that time, although carbon dating has some little shakiness to it. I know we love to act like it's it's perfect, but it's not. It's got some huge swings in it and some difficulties as far as, as, far as where the manuscripts were kept and what condition, where they're at. Anyway, to get past that, the, those original manuscripts mean that we actually know that this is actually was written by Moses. And for these people that we name here, these people that we have archaeological evidence of their existence. We have we have great archaeological evidence of their existence. We have their names coming down through the languages of history, not just because Moses wrote their names down, but because they are actual real places and are known by these names. And so when we come to this, it's important that you realize that the Bible is right here in this in these genealogies, 
is certifying itself. What God's doing is going, hey, look, all these road signs in the world that you see, all these people that that are I'm mentioning here, they're out there to be found. You can see them. You can know them. I love the story of the book of Daniel and the man named Daniel. His book has prophecies in it that are so accurate and so on the money that throughout most of history, people thought that book was written seven, six, seven hundred years after it was actually purported to be written. And so when we were reading, when we're reading the book of Daniel, sometimes people would, people would say this was written afterwards because, and the reason they believed it had to have been written afterwards is because it accurately depicted the rise of four mighty empires, four empires on the earth. And it accurately depicted their symbolism. It accurately depicted how they came to power, the speed in which they came to power, the mode in which they came to power, the method they the method they gained control over their empires, and then and then it accurately predicted how they were destroyed. And people just said that just couldn't be until we began to after. And in fact, the search for that information, the search for that truth, is a lot of what led to us finding oil in the Middle East. And and all these things run hand in hand. But the truth is that now we have archaeological evidence of this man, this great man, this great Hebrew man named Daniel who was a second in charge of the Babylonian empire, but not only that empire, but he's second in charge of the Persian empire. And, and that book of Daniel is just one of those books, of one of those great, huge flags that God's screaming at you. I know what's going on in the future. I know how things are going to turn out. And this genealogy right here is one of those things also. It's one of those places where God says, hey, look, <clears throat> I told you about this a long time ago. I told you about this a long time ago, and it's true, and it's something that archaeologically we can just go down there, and we know it's true. These names that are used, especially in verse 6 and 7 here, are, well, they're just they're just dead on the money. We, we know who a Cushite is. We know who the people of Cush are. It says in verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush. First, Cush. Who is Cush? Cush is, an, Cush is the father of Ethiopia. He's the Ethiopian legacy from God. We know exactly who Cush is, and Cush is mentioned. Cush is mentioned throughout Scripture. He is. He's mentioned in the Book of Judges. He's mentioned and mentioned as a nationality. Uh, Moses took a Cushite wife, which means he took an Ethiopian wife. And uh, had a big problem with his brother and sister because apparently they thought you couldn't marry people outside your race. The issue was not racial. When God said, don't marry anyone from the, the other nations, the, the issue was faith. And uh, there were many slaves from Ethiopia that intermingled with the Hebrews in, in Egypt when they were in slavery there. And when they intermingled with them, they took on the Hebrew faith. They began to worship Yahweh. They began to worship Jehovah. They began to worship Adonai. They began to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they became religiously Jews, even though they may not have been ethnically from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob. They were, they became Jews. And they intermarried and intermingled into the Hebrew people. And so when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt, he fell in love with a Cushite woman. He took her as his wife. And obviously, racism is real. It is true. If there's anything that's true, we know that all the Ten Commandments speak to the issues of our heart 
right? But thou shalt not commit adultery. But anybody that man has lust in his heart has already committed adultery. That's what Jesus said. We're going to always have division. And that's one of the things God said, thou shalt not commit murder. But Jesus said, I say unto you, if you've ever killed it, if you've ever hated anybody in your heart, you have murder in your heart. You're a murderer. And so understanding those principles and those ideas leads you to understand that Miriam and Aaron weren't happy that he took a black wife. That's just the truth of the story. And God brought them before the tent of meeting and handled that problem. Why? Because the issue is not our color. The issue is not our hair. Uh, the issue is not where we come from as far as our, as far as our nationality. The issue is, the issue has always been whether or not you trust God or not, whether or not you, whether or not you're a God follower, a faith-filled person. And I've always said, especially in the region that we live in the areas where we're a part of, I've always said that if you look at a congregation, you can figure out how healthy that congregation is based off of really looking for four things. And I say this all the time when I've been talking to pastors and stuff. I may not have. I actually said it several times yesterday to someone or to a group of people. But when you're looking at a congregation, you need to see, first of all, a lot of white hair, not all white hair, not most white hair. But a lot of white here because you need some older people in the church. Older people in the church add stability and they give you wisdom and they can be a great source of encouragement for the young people to move forward and chase after God. And oftentimes they are the source of encouragement. And I'm proud and very thankful that we have a large older population in our church that encourages us to chase after God, loves to sing the new songs, loves to see the Holy Spirit moving among young people and changing lives and making a difference. You want to have you want to have that in your church. You got to have that in your church. Second thing you got to have is you got to have children. If you don't have if you don't have any if the population of your church is less than 10% children, you got a problem. Why? Because Jesus that's where Jesus is the Holy Spirit moves best is among the children. And uh, it's a pure place. It's a place where, where the Holy Spirit plants seeds of growth. If you don't have children in your church, you're dead. You're dying, and you're going to be dead soon. And uh, I'm not saying that to be ugly. I'm just saying that as a fact. You got to have children in the church. You got to have teenagers in the church. Third thing you got to look for is you need young men in the church. And not to say that women aren't important, but the truth is men, generally speaking, don't want to go to church. Men want to do what they want to do. And when you walk into a church and young men from the age of 20 on up to their early 40s, if you see a lot of them, you got a healthy church, you got a healthy congregation. You got a healthy work going on there. And finally, when things, when God's really, if you're in a, if you're in a predominantly white church, you need to see some black people. And if you're in a predominantly black church, you need to see some white people. Why? Because God loves the diversity of his kingdom. He He made everything. You can't even look at his nature and not see the great diversity of his nature. And his people are from every tribe and nation, tongue, and language. They're, they're going to be people from every nationality, every people group that are going to that are going to come and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've got that group of people, if we lived in an area that had a lot of Chinese folks, well, you'd need some Chinese folks there. And if we had a if we lived in an area that had a lot of a lot of people from I don't know India, then you would need some of those folks in your church. You'd need those people. Why? Because that's evidence that the Holy Spirit's moving among not only you, but moving along, moving beyond you to the to the community that you live in. 
And that's important. It's important that your church has diversity that recognizes the diversity of the community that you live in. And we live in a, a very diverse nation, the United States of America, the most diverse nation in the world. And you need that. You got to have it. And understanding all that and understanding that even though I went down a rabbit trail here, but understanding that Cush is a person that's mentioned, I'm talking about, it, you just look up the word Cush in the Bible and it is dozens and dozens of mentions of this person called Cush, because we know historically that Ethiopia, which is south of Egypt, which was a great nation that the Egyptians uh, warred against and took to battle, we know that they were Cush. They're Cush today. They will be Cush when Jesus comes back. And then he said he gave birth to Cush. Then he gave birth to this person named Mizraim. And Mizraim is mentioned, Mizraim is mentioned several times. He is, he is a, he's the father of what the best way for me to describe it is the Arabian Peninsula. He's one of the descendants uh, populated out the Arabian Peninsula. And when you see Mizraim mentioned, you're generally speaking of the people who, and not all of them, but the people who populated the Arabian Peninsula. And there's historical evidence of that name also, not as great as Cush but heavy historical evidence of who that is. And then and then finally you've got you've got the, the two that are known also, Put and uh and uh, and Canaan. And Put and Canaan are important. They're important because as you're as you're looking through scripture, you realize that Put is Libya. It's the area on past Egypt along the northern coast of Africa in the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, it's there are there that's the area where they are. And put is a fairly well known name. Sometimes it's spelled P H U T rather than just P U T. But it's it's it is it's Libya. It's it's Morocco. It's those areas as you're moving toward the west in 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 northern Africa. And it's a known the, this name is a known name also. It is it's and it's mentioned in throughout Scripture. Nahum and Jeremiah. And, and Ezekiel mentioned mentioned put and put is also mentioned many times. Put's mentioned many times along with Cush as a part of the alliance of nations who attack Israel right before right before the tribulation begins. That war that I mentioned yesterday that's led by Rosh, Magog, Gog, and Magog and the Persians that attack Israel and Israel utterly destroys them, which causes political and economic trouble and tremors on the earth such that the Antichrist has the ability to come to power and come to control those things and is seen as a savior in a very bad situation. And oftentimes we talk, I've said this yesterday, people ask me, do you believe everything's in place for Jesus to come back? Everything is in place, but the issue is of all the things that scripture says is going to take place is going to take place before Jesus comes back. And the truth is that war's got to take place, that that battle. But we can see the alliances already. And we can see that you have some the Muslims of Cush and Put, not all of Ethiopia's Muslim, but there's a large portion of it. And then obviously Put and the Libyans have always been a trouble. And then there is this tying together of Iran and Russia that has been going on for a long time and been going on for a while. And we're in a position where that war could take place at any time. Now you say, Pastor, when's it going to happen? It could happen 100 years from now. I have no idea. And I say that all the time when I'm when we're studying prophecy. I'm not here to try to give you a date or a time because I don't have the date and I don't have the time. I got time to tell you about it, but I don't have the time date to give it to you so you'll know when it's going to happen. And the reason I don't is because Jesus said I wouldn't know. 
And if he says I wouldn't know, I'm going to tell you it's pretty straight up. I don't know. I just don't know. Anyway, so that's that's where we're at on, on those. And then it says here that Cush, the sons of Cush, because it goes into it pretty deep. It goes into the sons of Cush were Havilah. That's a well-known word in that part of the world. It's it's more of the northern Arabian Peninsula toward what we call modern-day Persia. Seba, Sapta. Rama and Sab, best way for me to describe it is Sabtechach. Anyway, I can't, there's lots of C's and H's there and B's and T's. And if you've got dyslexia, I'm not even sure that I'm looking at it right when I see it. But anyway, those are the things. But just to finish out, you have, and the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. And Sheba and Dedan are important names. Now, there's also two, two sons named Sheba and Dedan who were born to Abraham's children later on. But Sheba and Dedan are a focal point of scripture as far as that big war we're talking about that takes place between. And I just want to read you the prophecy that kind of kicks that off. It's Ezekiel 38, 13. And I know I'm jumping around a lot today, but you have to when you come up with names, when you go through the table of nations, it says Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish. Well, that's, uh, we talked about yesterday, that's likely Portugal or England, more more likely England. Sheba and Dedan are, are the Southern Arabian Peninsula. They populate out the Southern Arabian Peninsula. And the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, art thou come to take us spoils? And they're saying that to Persia and Rosh. Are you come to take spoils? Hast thou gathered thy company to take prey, to carry away silver and gold, and to take away cattle and goods, and to take away a great spoil? What they're saying is, are you coming to take Israel so that you can, so that you can, um, are you coming to take Israel so that you can take away all the riches and the wealth of Israel? And Israel is a very rich and wealthy country because they have they have maximized their potential in the land that they live in. And Sheba and Dedan are on the sidelines telling Rosh and telling Persia and telling all these countries that are coming together to attack Israel. Are y'all trying to take Israel so that y'all can gain great wealth and gain great glory? And what's neat about that is that up until just recently, Sheba and Dedan, the, that area that they populated, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia, and the Emirates that are on the eastern coast of Saudi Arabia on the in the Persian Gulf, they would have not been on Israel's side. But under the, on, under the Trump administration, they have made peace with Israel, and we are not far from seeing Saudi Arabia make peace with Israel because they've realized that the Shiite Muslims of Persia and their allies are far more dangerous to them than the than Israel is as a small little nation, the sliver of a nation on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And they have made peace with them. Many of the Emirate nations have already made peace with them. And Jordan and Saudi Arabia will make a permanent peace with them. And so you will see where Jordan and Saudi Arabia and the Emirates of, of the Persian Gulf will make peace with Israel. And they are Sheba and Dedan. They're Sheba and Dedan. And, and so this prophecy in Ezekiel 38, 13, until the last four years didn't seem possible, but it is possible today. And the reason it's possible today, and the reason that we can say what we're saying about this today is because God's word's true. It is. What God has to say is true. 
And even books that are written thousands of years ago are accurate to the very to the very letter of what God is doing. And uh, you can trust it. You can trust what God says. And uh, I can tell you this, you can trust him a whole lot better than someone else who's just shooting off at the mouth about what they think about this, that, or the other. And uh, you can trust to God's word a whole lot better than you trust me. I wouldn't be trusting me unless I was talking about God's word because God's word is the truth. It's life. It's hope. And that's why we spend time in the morning focused on God's word. And that's why we spend time on Wednesday night. And that's why the center point of what we do on Sunday morning is that focus on God's word because it's the it's Jesus. It bring, We worship to bring us to the point where we see Jesus in his fullness, which he's the word made flesh. And, and then ultimately we're changed by him. And so our worship is designed to bring us to the bring us to an understanding of who Jesus is and then bring us to a place where we uh, we where we walk with God in perfection and hope and in faith and that's what it's all about and even in reading in this kind of a little bit I'm not going to lie to you boring chapter 10 of the book of Genesis it's not really all that boring when you realize what all these things mean and it's fairly exciting next tomorrow we're going to talk about Rod the great Rod the killer and uh, we're going to see the birth of the great false religion of history. And uh, I pray that we'll have a good time with that also. While we're doing all this, we're just walking through life together. We're doing life. I hope you're out there loving on people, talking to people, ministering to people, making a difference in the world you live in because the Holy Spirit's at work and the Holy Spirit's at work in our church and the Holy Spirit's at work in the area that we live in. And we're very prayerful and very focused on what God and who God is and, and allowing him to be God in our lives and in our community. As you go today, I pray that the Lord will bless you and keep you, that he'll make his face to shine upon you, and that he will give you hope and peace today in Jesus' name.